This morning we're going to consider Daniel living out his faith. I could say Daniel in the den of lions, but it's Daniel living out his faith. And that's the whole of chapter 6 of the book of Daniel, verses 1 through to 28. Last week we looked at the previous chapter, chapter 5, which is about the appearance of fingers that wrote a message on a wall at a big boozy party hosted by King Belshazzar of Babylon. Daniel was called for and he read and interpreted the message that was written on the wall. It was a pronouncement of divine judgment. That very night, the Babylonian Empire was conquered by Darius the Median and Belshazzar was killed. As such, we saw what had been represented by the fall of the head of gold on a great image and the rise of the chest and arms of silver on that image in accordance with a dream that Belshazzar's grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar, had in chapter 2 and which Daniel had also interpreted, having prayed about it to Almighty God. I'm telling you all this because these things didn't just happen just as things don't just happen today. It's all determined by God. The fall of the Babylonian Empire, the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire and so on. In today's passage, Daniel chapter 6, an account is given of Daniel being cast into a lion's den as a consequence of not complying with a royal decree that forbade prayers and petitions being made to any god or man other than King Darius the Mede for 30 days. God sent his angel who shut the lion's mouths and Daniel suffered no injury. Finally, the king issued an order that required all of his subjects to tremble and to fear before the god of Daniel. First of all, we can consider Daniel's appointment to first president of Medo-Persia. I'm not going to read the whole chapter for you again, but I will read verses 1 to 3 in chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first that the princes might give accounts unto them and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel, Daniel rather, was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him and the king thought to set him over the whole realm, the whole kingdom. King Darius appointed a 120 princes over all his kingdom and those princes were accountable to just three men called presidents, of whom Daniel was the chief, the first president. In other words, Daniel, who by that time was an old man, he's reckoned to have been about 90 years old by then, he had risen to the second highest office in the Medo-Persian Empire, second only to the king, and all the leaders of the various provinces were accountable to Daniel. The reason for that accountability to just three presidents and ultimately to the chief president, to Daniel, President Daniel, 
The, the reason for all that accountability is given in verse 2, that the king should have no damage. Apart from anything else, that means that it was Daniel's job to ensure that there was no loss of revenue to the king, whether through financial mismanagement or corruption in high places. As it was, so it still is, that we live in a world in which the love of money is the root of all evil. It is a world in which corruption is rife at every level, from the least of people to the greatest. We know that in the UK, for example, greedy politicians have been caught fiddling their expenses or lobbying for large corporations that they are connected with and no doubt they receive handsome financial rewards from. Even though Daniel was getting on in years, he must still have had all his marbles and wits about him to be chosen for that high and important office. Also, according to verse 3, the king saw that there was an excellent spirit in him. As such, even that pagan king was able to see godly qualities in Daniel, such as wisdom. Back in chapter 1, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon found Daniel and his three companions, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, to be ten times better than his magicians and astrologers in matters of wisdom. Unlike the other wise men, Daniel's was a godly wisdom. Coming back to King Darius of the Medes and Persians, he would have observed that Daniel was as honest as the day is long and that he was a moral man. He was a man of integrity and that he could be entrusted with important affairs of state and with the king's riches, unlike all the other officials. Amazingly, the last king of the Babylonian Empire, Belshazzar, hadn't even heard of Daniel until the queen come into, came into his drunken and idolatrous party and she said to him, There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods and in the days of thy father light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him, was found in Daniel whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans and soothsayers, for as much as an excellent spirit, a knowledge, an understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. You can see King Nebuchadnezzar, he saw a lot in Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar, he was a pagan king and he saw so many godly qualities in Daniel. And no doubt King Darius the Mede also saw those godly qualities in Daniel. Dear Christian, does your pagan boss or your teachers or anyone else for that matter see the same excellent spirit in you? Reasonable question, I think. If you are trusting in the Son of God, then they should see an ex excellent spirit in you. Why is that? 
It's because you are indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. As such, you really ought to stand out as someone who has an excellent spirit in you, whether it's with a small s or a very big s. They should see that excellent spirit in you in this corrupt and perverse generation with you showing yourself to be honest and trustworthy as a Christian. Secondly, we can consider the the wicked schemes against Daniel. We'll look at verses 4 and 5. Then the presidents and the princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom but they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. If you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour from sin, then you stand before God holy and without blame. I think I'm always going on about that since we um, looked at Ephesians, went through the whole epistle of the Ephesians. We're still looking at Ephesians on Sunday evenings. We're on chapter 6 now. But right in chapter 1, it's written that... um, those whom God chose before the foundation of the world to be holy, they are holy and blameless without blame before him in love. That is your position before God, dear Christian. When God sees you, he sees someone who is holy and without blame. And you may ask, well, why is that? And the answer is very simple. It's because you stand before God, washed in the blood of Jesus and clothed with his righteousness. You can see why God sees you as holy and without blame. That is your position before God. But the big question is, is that holiness and that blamelessness at all evident in the life that you now live as a new creature in Christ? Certainly God sees you as holy and without blame. But what about this world that is watching every move that you make, waiting for you to stumble? It most certainly was with Daniel. His holiness, his blamelessness was not just his position before God. It was something that even these presidents and princes and kings could see in him. So, it most certainly was with Daniel, and I say that because, as can be seen, a plot was hatched by the 120 princes and the other two presidents to eliminate him by having him cast into a lion's den. They wanted rid of him, but there was a big problem, wasn't there? As it's written in verse 5, they could find nothing with which to accuse him of, before the king. They couldn't find any fault in him, except it be concerning the law of his God. What an amazing testimony that is, and it is certainly one that you, who belong to Jesus, might like to pray, would apply to you. 
that the unbelieving world would find nothing to accuse you of other than being obedient to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you confess. They devised a very cunning plot that would forbid everyone in the kingdom from entreating any god or man other than the king for a period of 30 days, knowing full well that Daniel would never comply with it. Perhaps the most audacious part of that plot was when all the princes and presidents succeeded in getting King Darius to effectively sign the death warrant for the second most important man in his kingdom. Note in verse 6 that they assembled together to the king. Look at that in verse 6. If you've got a King James Bible with a centre margin, you'll see that verse 6 Where it says that they assembled together, it can be read as they came tumultuously. In other words, they thronged the king, just as the multitudes used to throng the Lord Jesus Christ. However, Jesus knows the thoughts and the intents of wicked and scheming hearts, whereas King Darius was thoroughly hoodwinked, thoroughly deceived with words of flattery, such as, King Darius, live forever. Also, the thought of being treated as God for 30 days with no one being allowed to entreat any God or man other than him during that period of time must have inflated his ego. The most ingenious part of that plot must surely have been that once signed, the decree was irreversible. How clever that was. Perhaps you can picture all of those princes and presidents falling over each other to hand the king a pen to sign it. That plot was so ingenious and it was acted out so convincingly by 122 wicked men that the king didn't even think to inquire where Daniel was. Can you imagine that? The 120 princes, two of the presidents, but where's the most important president? The king didn't even ask that question. He was too busy being flattered and thronged by all those men. Neither did he question why the decree was for 30 days and not 300 days or or whatever. Why 30 days? What's going on here? He didn't ask, did he? Last of all, and this is a sobering thought, we need not imagine that there are no longer any people in high places who devise cunning and ingenious plots to eliminate those whom they consider to be a threat to them. You can be sure that there are still people in the corridors of power who will collude and they will do whatever it takes to maintain their luxurious lifestyles. But that's the world we live in. It's a fallen world populated by people with desperately wicked hearts. Thirdly, we can consider Daniel's response to the royal decree. Look at verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house 
and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. You might think that what Daniel was doing was not in compliance with the instruction that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to his disciples many hundreds of years later in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus spoke to the disciples about praying in their closet and not praying to be seen and praised by men. However, Daniel was not making a show of praying. Neither was he praying to be praised by men and neither should that be our intention when we pray together as a church fellowship. There's nothing wrong with praying as a church fellowship as long as we're not praying to be seen and praised by men. Likewise, there's nothing wrong in praying in your home with a few people, whether it's family or friends, a prayer partner, whoever. As long as you are praying towards the God of heaven, to the God of heaven, to be heard by him. Daniel was simply praying as he always prayed, whether people saw him or not. And furthermore, by praying towards Jerusalem, Daniel was praying biblically. I say that because many years earlier, when King Solomon of Israel was dedicating the temple in Jerusalem in his intercessory prayer for the people, he said, If they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not, and thou be angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, so that they carry them away captives unto the land of the enemy, far or near. Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land whither they are carried captives and repent and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned and have done perversely, we have committed wickedness, and so return unto thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, which led them away captive. Listen to this now. And pray unto thee toward their land, which thou gavest unto their fathers, the city which thou hast chosen, and the house which I have built for thy name. Then hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven, thy dwelling place, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people that have sinned against thee. Therefore, far from doing anything wrong, Daniel was praying biblically, as he did aforetime. The last words in verse 10, as he did aforetime. We no longer pray towards an earthly Jerusalem, do we? But you do well to direct your prayers towards the heavenly Jerusalem. Pray biblically as well. For example, pray for forgiveness of your sins. Pray that God's will be done. Also, Daniel's faith is perhaps best seen in the chamber of his house and not in the lion's den. You might think of the lion's den as a show of faith. Let's consider that it was in his chamber Consider this, back in chapter 3, the big test of faith for Shadrach, Meshach 
and Abednego was not when they were cast into the fiery furnace. It was before that. It was when they refused to fall down and worship an idol, knowing that a fiery furnace awaited them. That was the faith in action, refusing to bow down to an idol, knowing what awaited them. They could so easily have put their faith on hold and complied with the decree, but they didn't. Similarly, the big test of faith for Daniel came not in the lion's den, but in his house, where he could so easily have drawn the curtains, or at the very least, he could have prayed in a less conspicuous way. But he didn't. He just did what he always did. In the New Testament, the apostles flatly refused to stop preaching the gospel of Christ when they were ordered to do so by the Jewish council, and consequently, they were beaten. Furthermore, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Can you see that the big test of faith for the apostles was not so much being beaten, but what led to it, continuing to preach the gospel of Christ, even though they were told to stop doing so. I wonder if your prayer life is governed by you first, making sure that no one will actually see you. And your Christian witness is governed by you first of all, assessing the risks to yourself. Or are those activities first and foremost governed by a desire on your part to live your born again life biblically and for the glory of the God of your salvation? Remembering that your life is not your own. You were bought with a price and that price was the precious blood of Christ and his death at the cross. It's worth considering these things. It really is, dear Christian, because if and when we all get lined up by the enemies of Christ with the threat of being shot in the head, if we confess our faith in Jesus, how do you imagine that you might respond when you are asked? Obviously, none of us knows for sure how we might respond, but how we live right now ought to give us a clue. Fourthly, we will consider Daniel not being consumed in the lion's den. First and foremost, it was a miracle of God that Daniel was not eaten by the lions, just as it was a miracle of God when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were not consumed in the fiery furnace. In the case of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, the testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3 verse 25 was, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. God was with his faithful servants in that fire. As for Daniel in the lion's den, his own testimony here in verse 22 of chapter 6 is, My God have sent his angel and have shut the lion's mouths, that they have not hurt me. I try to avoid humour in the pulpit, but I can't resist this one. Apparently Spurgeon, so I'm blaming Spurgeon for this, Spurgeon said, that it is a good thing that the lions didn't try 
to eat Daniel. They would have not, they would not have enjoyed him, for he was half grit and the other half backbone. Pray that you would be half grit and half backbone, like Daniel. Finally, there are no doubt countless other people throughout history who have been able to bear testimony of God, delivering them out of the fiery furnace or out of the lion's den in times of trial. The Apostle Paul was one such person. Despite terrible persecution from people outside the church and despite being forsaken within the church, he was still able to say in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17, Notwithstanding the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. I'm sh- I, I would guess that he was thinking about Daniel at the time when he said that. The likes of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel and the Apostle Paul and many others in times past and even now are all people for whom comforting assurances that God is with his people are more than just lovely Bible verses that they know and are able to quote. Those verses are their experience and that is because they have lived out a saving faith in Jesus which is one of suffering insults, persecution, and some have even suffered, ultimately, death for his sake and for his glory. Have you ever thought about that? We don't just live for the glory of God, we die for the glory of God, or at least we ought to. Just as Daniel entered the lion's den with no assurance from God that he would deliver him, the only thing that God assures us of in this world is suffering for Christ's sakes. Although the royal decree was irreversible and consequently King Darius reluctantly had Daniel thrown into the lion's den, he clearly didn't want to but he did anyway, once Daniel was delivered from that ordeal, that was it. The terms of the decree had been fulfilled and there was no question of Darius throwing Daniel back into that lion's den. And that, dear friends, takes us to the cross. If you have shown repentance towards God and you are trusting in Jesus as your saviour from sin, Jesus took your punishment at the cross and he did lay down his life at the cross. He wasn't delivered from that. He laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin. It was an experience never to be repeated and the demands of God's law have been fully satisfied by Jesus. As a consequence of the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ to the law throughout his life and also in his sacrificial death at the cross, You now have forgiveness for all your sins and you have everlasting life. May each one of us here be people who are trusting in Jesus as the one who who has fulfilled the terms 
of God's decree, his law, trusting in Jesus, in his life of obedience and even unto death on the cross. And from then on, with the grace of God enabling us and the indwelling spirit, may people see an excellent spirit in us that in all things God receives the glory. Amen.